Good to be here with you, privilege and an honor to study God's Word together. Uh, I want to ask you to open to Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles, Acts chapter 2. There is a verse in Scripture that has always haunted me as a pastor. It's not Matthew chapter 7, depart from me, I never knew you. That's haunted me as a person. (laughs) But as a pastor, the one that really has gotten to me over the years is Revelation 3, 1, where Jesus says to the church of Sardis, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I find that troubling. I find that sobering, that a church can produce a reputation that it is alive, when in fact it very well could be dead. Maybe the music is very energetic, the speaker is very animated and fervent, and the people get stirred up emotionally, and there's activity when in fact it could be dead. And so how do we know if a church is alive by God's spirit? I think that's why we have the verses, Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. Luke is trying to show us what a spirit-empowered church looks like, objectively. He's connecting it to Pentecost in chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the church. The gospel is proclaimed through Peter in his sermon at Pentecost, and then it shows us the first picture of the church, and this is what they did because they were empowered and alive by the Holy Spirit. The first characteristic of a church that is alive by the power of the Holy Spirit is that they cling They cling to the means of grace. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Notice the word the in front of all of those. The teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers. That means that these were staples in the church. The church throughout history have used this phrase, the means of grace, to describe the ordinary, regular, God-ordained activities of the church by which the grace of God empowers and blesses that church. I'll say it one more time. The means of grace are the ordinary, regular, God-ordained activities of the church by which God empowers and blesses and pours out his grace upon that church. And the early church clung to the means of grace that is described in verse 42. And I say clung because the word devoted there, maybe when you think of devoted, you think of, uh, for me, I think of an athlete, an athlete who's devoted to winning and they are disciplined and they, they work out all the time and they practice all the time because they want to win and so they're devoted to their task. 
And I think of a, of a duty, duty, discipline approach. But really the word here for devoted is proskatereo in the Greek, and it means to cling to. It means to attach yourself to someone or something out of desperation. The church was desperate. And so when you think about this activity of the church devoting themselves, it's less about discipline and it's more about desperation and delight. For example, when you think of this word, don't think of a disciplined swimmer out in the ocean swimming many laps. Think of someone drowning out in the ocean and someone has thrown them a raft and they are clinging to this raft out of desperation. And they are delighted that they have this raft. Proskatereo is less about discipline and it's more about desperation and delight. The early church was desperate and delighted in attaching themselves and clinging to the means of grace that God has given them. What are those? The first is the apostles' teaching in verse, 20, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You know a church is alive by the power of the Spirit when that church has an unwavering commitment to the Word of God. They love the Word. They study the Word. They preach the Word. They defend the Word. They receive the Word with joy. They defend it. They trust it. They handle it accurately. They memorize the Word. They read the Word. They sing the Word. They let the word convict them in times of sin. They let the word comfort them in times of suffering. The word of God is everything to the people of God. Amen. Having said that, you'll notice that it does not say that they devoted themselves to scripture. It does not say that they devoted themselves to the Bible. It does not say they devoted themselves to biblical teaching. Quite accurately, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Mm. Have you ever wondered why God uses fallen, sinful men to proclaim his word? I have. <laughs> Who is that guy? Who does he think he is up there? talking God's word. He's fallen just like, I, I mean, wouldn't it have been wiser? Here's, I can maybe uh, give the Lord some advice. Wouldn't it have been wiser if he had chosen angels to proclaim his word in his church? I mean, I can respect an angel. <laughs> Why does God use young men in the pulpit? I'm three times his age. <laughs> Why does God use middle-aged guys like me no longer cool, <laughs> not that I ever was. Why did God use 12 buffoons? <laughs> and that's kind of what they were if you read the Gospels. Second Corinthians 4, 7 gives us the answer. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's not easy receiving the word of God from other people who are just like us, other human beings, fallen, sinful, broken human beings. 
But if my heart loves the word of God, it doesn't matter to me the package in which I receive it. And you see, it's a test from the Lord. It's a test. And someone came to me and they said, Josh, you have won $1 million. Would you like that delivered to you in a crumpled up old envelope? Or would you like that delivered to you in a silver platter? Do you know what I would say? I don't care. (laughs) Just give me the mill. It doesn't matter because our hearts love treasure and our hearts, if they love this treasure, it doesn't matter if it comes to us in a stylish, packaged form or if it comes to us in a jar of clay. It's a test. People look and they say, you know, amazing things happened when she led that Bible study. Amazing things happened when he preached from the pulpit. Therefore, I must conclude that it was God who did the work because it couldn't have been him. That's why God uses sinful, human, fallen men and women to proclaim his word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, not just to reading the Bible on their own, but to receiving the word of God through other fallen human beings who have been with Jesus, who knew Jesus, and Jesus said to them, he who receives you receives me. He who does not receive you does not receive me. Some people say, well, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. If you reject the church, you reject Christ. If you reject his messengers, you reject him. But the good news is, if you accept his messengers, you accept Christ. The second thing they devoted themselves to of the means of grace is the fellowship, it says. The fellowship in verse 22, or verse 42. Now, if your idea of fellowship is what you experience right here in this auditorium, uh, your understanding of fellowship is severely lacking. If this is all you do, which is good that you're here, if you're here, thank you, this is great, it's wonderful, this is, we do this, this is such a joy to be here all together, but this, technically, is just a very small slice of fellowship. When you think of the word fellowship, you have to think of the word koinonia, and the word koinonia in the Greek means to participate in or to share in. And so if you're really doing fellowship, you're not just attending and watching, you're sharing in other people's lives. You're participating in their lives. It's really, when you think of koinonia, when you think of fellowship, don't think of a service where you come and watch, as important as that is, think of instead the one another's in scripture. And ask yourself, do I do these things? Love one another, honor one another, build one another up, accept one another, admonish one another. These are all from the New Testament. Care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, comfort one another, share hospitality to one another, confess your sins to one another, James 5. Pray for one another, stir up one another to good deeds and be patient with one another. The primary way that we do that here at the chapel is through ABFs. 
If you're not in an ABF, get in one. Where you can be cared for. Where you can learn to forgive. And you will have to learn how to forgive if you join an ABF. I have ABF leaders meeting with me over the years. I've been over ABS for about seven years now. I've been at the church. And, and a number of times, they, they, they're pulling out their hair, trying to get people to be committed and devoted to their ABF. Because some people, you know, they'll show up to the ABF every great once in a while, and then they'll leave, and then they'll come back, and then they'll leave, and they'll come back. And they're, they're, they're trying desperately to get people to be faithful to the ABF. And, 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 and it's frustrating for them because they're treating the ABF like a hotel instead of a home. Fellowship, we should look at it like a, like a home, not a hotel. You see, a hotel is someplace that you go to every once in a while, right? And it's a place where you go to, to, to receive. You serve me. <laughs> but a home is a place where I'm at all the time. I'm devoted to it, and I serve in my home. And so many people have a view of fellowship as a hotel instead of a home. And they think, well, the, 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 the fellowship is just the cherry on top. This is the main thing. If I come here, God is pleased with me, and, and then I can go, but I don't have to do that. No, God has called us to koinonia. He has called us to the one another's. Elizabeth Elliot said, quote, I've never known a mature Christian who isn't devoted to fellowship. The early believers were empowered and alive by the power of the Spirit, and you knew it because they were devoted to fellowship with one another. Thirdly, they were devoted to the prayers. The prayers, or excuse me, let's handle that fourth. Communion, verse 42, communion. And they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, the breaking of bread. Now, some people come along and they read that phrase, the breaking of bread, and they say, well, that's just talking about sharing meals. Uh, they devoted themselves to sharing meals. And it is definitely true that the phrase breaking of bread was used in Jewish times for having a meal. They said that all the time. Would you like to come to my house and break bread together? In fact, in verse 46, it says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They shared meals in their home. That was just a phrase which meant to share meals. However, having said that, when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he redefined all of the common things that we experience in life, and he showed how those common things actually were designed by God to point to him. So, for example, light. Why do you think God gave us light? Just so that we could see? No, it's to point us to Jesus Christ who called himself the light of the world. Water, why do you think God created water? It was to point us to Jesus Christ who was the rock in the wilderness according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 who gave water to God's people. He is the water of life. Marriage, why do you think God created marriage? To point us to Christ. He is our husband. We are his bride. Why did God create rocks? To point us to Christ, who is our rock. Why did God create sheep? To point us to the Lamb of God. Why did God think up the career of shepherds? 
to point us to Christ, who is our shepherd. Why, why, why do we have things like homes? He who believes in me will come to me and make his home in me. Jesus is our true home. Roads, gates, boats, riches. All of those things were created by God to point us to Christ. They're about Christ. And when Christ, in the upper room, tore the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you, he was simply saying, this is why God created food. Because <laughs> it points to me. And when you break the food, when you break the bread, it pointed to the cross. Those who are empowered and alive by the Spirit cling to the Lord's table because the Lord's table declares to them that they have been completely forgiven, their sins are cleansed, past, present, and future. God sees them through the righteousness of Christ and they are reminded of this week in and week out because we experience guilt and shame throughout the week. I did this, I didn't treat this person right and all this and you feel rotten coming into church and then there's the table right in front of you. You are loved and accepted, not because of your righteousness, but because of Christ and what he did on the cross. And so you cling. Fourthly, they devoted themselves to the prayers. The prayers. Again, these were staples. These were things that they were committed to that they did regularly. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the prayers. You know, I didn't understand clinging to prayer probably until about a year and a half or two years ago in my life. You say, but you're a pastor. I know. I learned it late. It got to a point where prayer became less about, well, I know that this is what Christians are supposed to do. I know that this is what God wants me to do. He wants me to trust him and pray, and so I'm gonna do it, and I have my list, and I'm, I'm devoted to it, and that's all good. But it became more about, I started praying, and, and when I would pray, especially when you're suffering, you feel like you're breathing again. You feel like you're breathing again. And, and that, that we have to mature beyond just, I have to pray, to I get to pray. And Christ shed his tears on the cross, and he shed his blood so that the veil could be torn, so that we could boldly approach the throne of grace to receive mercy in times of help, so that we could pray. Amen. And if he hadn't have done that, we might pray, but it wouldn't do anything. God doesn't hear the prayers of those who haven't had the blood of Christ cleanse them of their sins. We have. Amen. You, and so because of that, we can go to him and breathe again. They were devoted to the prayers. So that was the first thing. They clung to the means of grace. Secondly, they were in awe. They were in awe. You know that a church is alive by the power of the Spirit because they experience awe. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul. You know, God created us to be in awe of his glory. 
we have a craving for the transcendent. Every soul has a craving for the transcendent. It's why we, we love the home run that wins the World Series. It's why people gaze at the beauty of another person. It's why we go to places like the Grand Canyon and places like that. We want to be in awe. We want our souls to be moved of something that is outside of us, something that is greater than us. It's why we go to the movies. We're hoping that our soul will be captivated by something because we want to be in awe. We want to worship. God created us to worship. We will worship something. We will be in awe of something. You cannot help it because that's how God created us. And those who are alive by the power of the Spirit are in awe of Christ and who he is and what he's done, the beauty of his character, the comfort of his love, his omniscience, this one who, who came to this earth. Do you know that Jesus Christ knows what every single molecule in the sun is doing right now? He knows its purpose, how, how fast it's traveling, not just in the sun, but every single planet. He knows all things, he's omniscient. He had the ability to settle a theological dispute that the Sadducees and Pharisees had been arguing about for hundreds of years, and he comes in and settles the dispute with just a few words. His wisdom and power over the wind and the waves. He commands it, and the disciples are in awe. Who is this that can command the winds and the waves? Maybe he tricked us with the bread somehow. But you, you can't trick the waves. They were in awe. His omnipresence by his spirit. Right now there's probably some frail old man in China praying and worshiping to the Lord and the, and the risen Lord Jesus is there with that man, but he's here with us too. Amen. <laughs> he's with every believer right now, rejoicing in them and their rejoicing of him. And the awe of the cross. Those who are alive by the power of the Spirit experience awe of Christ. If you've never been in awe of Christ, It might be that you have not been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're sitting here this morning and you're like, well, I don't think I've ever really been that impressed by Christ. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm here just to kind of do the thing you're supposed to do, but I'm not. God will forgive you. God will embrace you. God will enter into a relationship with you. Repent and confess your sins, trust in him, and he will save you from all of your sins. He will regenerate you, make you into a new creation so that your eyes can be opened to his beauty and to his glory so your soul can be eternally satisfied with the riches of who he is. Thirdly, because they were alive with the power of the Spirit, they demonstrated the truthfulness of the gospel they demonstrated the truthfulness of the gospel. Verse 43, and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostle. Now look at that word signs, signs, and many wonders and signs were being done. The purpose of miracles and wonders were to be signs to unbelievers that God 
was there and that their message was from God. That was the purpose. They were to be signs. Now, we don't believe that the sign gifts are present uh, today, that they gradually died out with the apostolic age, but that does not mean that you and I cannot do things and demonstrate the truthfulness of the gospel we can, particularly in three ways. Ready? Faith, hope, and love. First of all, faith. Philippians 1.28 says this, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. You have opponents, you have people in the world, they're gonna try to instill fear into you by persecuting you, mocking you, making fun of you. Stand strong, don't be afraid. That's faith. Faith is the opposite of fear. Faith is the opposite of fright. And then he goes on, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation. Our faith, our confidence is a sign to unbelievers of the truthfulness to that which we proclaim. Secondly is hope. Hope is a sign to unbelievers. 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Hope is a sign People in the world are desperately, desperately looking for hope. They try to cover up their misery and their guilt with the drugs and the party and their, their hobbies and their duties and their work or whatever it is. And, and sometimes you look at the world as David did in the Psalms and said, well, they, they look quite content to me. <laughs> well, you can be happy because you're deceived. But deep down in the recesses of their heart, they know they're dying. They can look around them and see that people are dying, that death is near, and so they're desperate for hope. And when they see hope in you, that is a sign to them of the truthfulness of what you proclaim. Faith is a sign, hope is a sign, and then love is a sign. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You say, well, I can't work miracles. That's okay. You have faith, hope, and love. You can still demonstrate the truthfulness of the gospel through that. And then fourthly, the early Christians were alive by the power of the Spirit, and you know it because they had generosity and sacrifice. Generosity and sacrifice. Look at verses 24 through 25. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In case you're afraid, this is not socialism. This is not Marxist philosophy. Socialism is the forced regulation and redistribution of wealth. It's forced. Nothing about this passage is forced. This is voluntary. This is the giving out of the joy of their heart. You hold loosely everything that you own. You give the money to the spiritual leaders of your church. They have the wisdom to decide, okay, what sort of people here in the church need this money. That's what they did. That's what we do here. That's all it is. And it is motivated, listen, it is motivated by the gospel. And you say, well, I have trouble holding on to my money. I have trouble holding on. I get it. I have trouble giving 
sacrifice. No, I'm, I need this. You don't understand. I need it. But, but here's, what's the motivation? The motivation is grace in the gospel, which is why Paul in 2 Corinthians said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Not materially rich, but spiritually rich. Jesus Christ left the glory and the comfort and the joy of heaven to come down here and to wear the spit of men on his beard and humbled himself so that we could have joy and imitate his sacrifice and generosity. That's where it comes from. We are heirs with Christ. Listen, the only thing we need is to have our eyes opened. We are already rich. Paul says, you've already been given everything in Corinthians. <laughs> well, no, I actually haven't. No, everything. Because you are in Christ. Because you have faith and repentance. And because you have faith and repentance, God placed you in Christ. And when he placed you in Christ, that means everything that the Father gives to the Son, you get too. Which is why Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. He didn't say, you'll have, you know, here's your tree. Here's your plot of land. No, you get it all. You get everything that Jesus gets. He's given us everything despite our sin. And we live forever in the kingdom, enjoying the fountain of his love and glory forever and ever. And we have trouble giving up five bucks sometimes. <laughs> As we meditate on the gospel, we become more giving and sacrificial, not just with money, but with our time, our energy. Fifthly, because they were alive by the power of the Spirit, they experienced joy, joy. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous heart. This, this is a picture of joy. This, these people, you know, the Spirit had come, and, and, and people were coming to faith, and they were eating together in their homes and praying together and doing the one another's of koinonia together, and they were glad. They had joy. But joy doesn't mean being smiley and bouncy all the time. Paul said, I'm always sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Aren't you glad he said that? I'm glad that verse is in the Bible. Because if we're honest with each other, there are days you walk in these doors and you think, I don't feel like smiling. Because how my life is going. It's hard. Let's be honest. We live in the time between the times. We're not in the promised land yet. But we are out of Egypt. We're out of the slavery and tyranny of our oppressors in Egypt. We've been saved. That's, that's the joy. But we're not in the promised land yet. That's the sorrow. We're in the wilderness. And that's why Paul said, I'm always rejoicing, yet always sorrowful. And God is with us in that wilderness, isn't he? Not just with us, but in us. Sixthly, because they were alive by the power of the Spirit, they were praising God. They had praise for God. 
Verse 47, the very beginning there, says that they were praising God. It's in the continual present, present tense, continual. They were continually praising God and not just singing and not just talking about the Lord and talking well. All those things are praise, to sing is praise, to talk about the Lord well, that's praise. But specifically, praise is giving credit to God for everything good in this world. That's praise, giving him credit. And and Luke really points that out in the book of Acts. All throughout the book of Acts, he shows how the early church gave credit to the Lord. So for example, if you look down at verse 47, what does it say? And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It does not say, and the dynamic preacher added to their number. It does not say, and the church added to their number. It says the Lord added to their number. Not the church growth consultant, not the pastor, not the people, as important as all their work is, they give the credit to God and the Lord added to their number. Here's another one, Acts 16, 14 about Lydia. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. The Lord, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And sometimes there are, there are times I, I really like it. It's like, man, you really held my attention, Josh. You captivated my attention. And my pride says, well, thank you. Yes, I did. And then I read a verse like this, and I, oh, the reason they were paying attention is because the Lord opened that person's heart to pay attention to what I was saying. The spirit-empowered believer gives credit and praise to the Lord. Acts 3.12, what does Peter do? He heals a, a blind man, a blind beggar, right? And, and, and then he says this, and, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. The crowd was amazed, and, and, and he said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? You see what the early church did? Because they were so full of the power of the Holy Spirit, they were continually giving credit to God, to the Lord. It's not, Peter says, it's not me. It's not my power. I don't have any power. It's not my piety. It's not my holiness. It's the Lord who did this. When the Spirit is in control, you're always praising, continually praising, continually giving him the credit. And then seventh, final characteristic of a Spirit-empowered church. Respect from outsiders. Respect from outsiders, unbelievers. Verse 47 says that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. Favor. Now that word favor, do you see that word favor? That's the exact word in the New Testament for grace. I could have translated it grace. That's because the word for grace in the Greek is charis, and it is the root word for the Greek word charismata from which we get charisma, charisma. There's an appeal there. The church was appealing. The people respected the church. But not charisma in the way that we think of it. We think of charisma in terms of charm. Oh, isn't he so charming? He's so full of charisma. No, that's not what Luke is talking about here. He's talking about respectability, 
for respectable reasons like love and holiness. The outsiders looked at the church, they looked at how they were loving one another, caring for one another, they looked at the purity of the church and they respected them. This needs to be balanced because on the one hand you have Jesus saying, you're gonna be hated, you're gonna be persecuted, and then you have uh, one of the qualifications for an elder is that he be thought well of by outsiders. And then you have this passage here that says that the church was thought well of and respected by outsiders, so which is it? Are we gonna be liked or are we gonna be disliked? The answer is, even if someone is against you and opposing you, they'll still respect you. They may not admit it, but they do. Ezekiel chapter two, I want you to go to the people, preach the word. They're gonna hate you, they're gonna oppose you, they're gonna give you, it says, dirty looks. That's no fun. But then the Lord says this, but they will know that a prophet has been among them. They'll respect you. They won't admit it, but it's there. Teenagers, can't stand you, mom and dad, because you're disciplining them, because you're doing something that's good for them that they don't want in their life, but you know it's good, and they get angry, but deep down inside, they respect you. So you can be opposed as the early church was, but still hold the respect and the favor of the outside world. So as a result of being alive by the power of the Spirit, the church clung to the means of grace. They were in awe of Christ. They demonstrated the truthfulness of the gospel. They were generous and sacrificial. They were filled with joy. They were continually praising God and giving him the credit and they were thought well of and respected by outsiders for their purity and their love. One final point. The primary reason Luke pens this portion of Acts, it's not to show us what the early church was doing and therefore what we are to do. That's one of the reasons, but really it's secondary. The primary reason this passage is here is to show us what God was doing. You see, because the early church, the, pe the, the people that Luke was writing to, Theophilus, and the people that Theophilus knew, they'd never seen Jesus. And, and the question was, is, is he still alive and doing the work and, and, and present with us? And Luke is saying, yes. The ascended Jesus, he, he starts off in, in Acts chapter one and Jesus ascends into heaven and he's gone. I guess we're here on our own. And Luke says, no. And he tries to show all throughout the book of Acts that the risen, ascended Lord Jesus is still with us. And he's still working in us and through us in the church. And so this passage wasn't given primarily for you to look at and say, Oh, I'm a terrible Christian. I should be more like the early Christians. This was given to us to reassure us and give us hope that even when it seems like the risen and ascended Lord isn't around, he is. And he's here with us. And he's working through us. And it's also given to us to show us that nothing, nothing can stop the plan of God. Amen. That's the book of Acts. External persecution, right? 
external persecution, every roadblock that is thrown in front of the apostles and the, and the disciples and Paul and Peter throughout the book of Acts, every roadblock is overcome. Persecution from without, internal strife and division from within. It's all overcome. Doctrinal confusion, Acts chapter 15. A ruined witness. Paul is arrested. How is the gospel going to go forth? Oh no. Where's he taken to? Rome. Where exactly he wanted to go. Now he has a a, a one-way ticket to Rome. He's being escorted by the Romans to proclaim that Jesus is Lord in a culture that said Caesar is Lord. And he gets there a lot faster than he would on his own. Ananias and Sapphira ruined the witness of the church. They lied to the Holy Spirit about their money and what they gave. And as a result, they were disciplined by the Lord and they died. That is not a very good church growth strategy. (laughs) But what does the verse say that's connected with that? It says this. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. (laughs) Someone ruins the witness of the church and the Lord kills them and more people start coming. Nothing can stop God. Not the ruined witness of a church. Not internal strife within a church. Not external persecution. Nothing is going to stop God from spreading his glory and his gospel from Jerusalem to Samaria to Judea to the ends of the earth. He will overcome every roadblock. That's the point of Acts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your power. You've given us your pardon through our Lord Jesus, and and now you give us your power through the Holy Spirit, both of which are undeserved. So we thank you, Lord. We praise you. We worship you. We're in awe of what you've done in the book of Acts, And, and really it's you through the church, the risen, ascended Lord, moving, saving lives, overcoming every roadblock. May you be glorified. We our jars of clay. Thank you for your love. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.